Now we can read scripture? Yes. <laughs> well done. It's a good song. The scripture reading for today is uh, from James chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that, forgives, that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. This morning we're going to uh, <clears throat> continue to, to roll out our theme for 2016, which is the word amplify. Let's say that word together, amplify. To amplify something is to make it big, it's to enlarge it, it's to intensify it. When you amplify something, it's to make it impossible to ignore. And that's what we want our faith to look like in this community. We want our faith to be big, we want it to be courageous, we want it to be loving, we want it to be tender, we want it to be biblical, but more than anything else, we want it to represent the Christ wherever we go. You know that during the day, and this is one of the things that... Uh, I, I don't stay up at night very often. Uh, usually uh, when it's time to go to bed, I can go to bed and go to sleep. But there are times when I, I, I stay awake at night realizing that in the 24 hours preceding my laying down in that bed and going to sleep, that I was the only representative of Christ that some people in this community had an encounter with that day. And what keeps me up at night is the wondering and the thinking about whether or not they saw Christ in me that our lives might be the only Bible that some people will ever read. And that's the why behind the Amplify. It's, it's to make our, our, our faith beautiful and hard to ignore and, and to, to compel the question when people encounter the members of this church family, the question is, who are these people and how can I be a part of what it is that they have? And that's why we look at the book of James at the beginning of this year as we roll out the theme of Amplify. We want our faith to be big. We want to live out loud. We want people to see that there is joy and there is treasure in having a relationship with God the Father. That God is not a cosmic killjoy, but is the author of life and the giver of life to every human being. And so that's what we're going to look at. James is a very, very practical book. It's a wisdom literature type of book in the New Testament, like Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. That's what James does in the New Testament. It's a book on how to live. It answers the question, if you have faith in Christ, what are you going to look like? How are you going to live? How are you going to react and respond to the things around you? 
So we're going to look at the text that, um, that Dr. Kaufman read for us just a minute ago. And before we do that, we're going to pray and ask God to bless us. So let's bow our heads, join our hearts, and ask God to bless us. Father, we're grateful for every blessing that we have in Christ. But we want to be more grateful and more thankful in ways that create a deeper, more profound, insightful faith in our lives and being more profound in our faith and deeper and amplified in our faith, Father, that, that we will live a life that's hard to ignore, that it's, it's, it oozes with the gospel, the good news. It, it's, it's a model of grace. It is the example of Christ. It's the picture of Christ. So as we think about these very practical things that this brother of Jesus has written to us, these ancient words, we pray, Father, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we turn toward you, that we turn towards you and find ourselves being healed even more. This we ask in the name of Jesus, and everyone said. Let's uh, step out of the 21st century for a moment. Um, Susan Neiman, in her book, Evil in Modern Thought, writes that the greatest puzzle, the greatest problem that uh, philosophers have had to face since the, you know, the, 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 the 18th century is the problem of pain and the problem of suffering. And a lot of that was not just the, the kind of evil that you would experience in a human being where it's, it's personified in a human being, but it was also how do you deal with a benevolent God and a good God and a loving God and a powerful God and, a, and a, an all-knowing God but at the same time, you have catastrophes like earthquakes that rocked Lisbon. You have, you have volcanoes. You have hurricanes. And these are things that we, we have even to this day. But in the, the 20th century, it became even more focused. And one of the things that took place, as you know, at the very beginning of the 20th century, two world wars, World War II in particular, was very troubling to philosophers. Because the question that, that came up was, how could... In a country like Germany, but in Western Europe as a whole, that was cultured, that was educated, that was refined, that saw itself as very academic, it saw itself as very intelligent and, and, and cultured in the sense of the way that it thought about the world, and very modern in the way that it related to the world around it. How could a culture like that, and one primarily in Germany, produce a guy like Adolf Hitler, who not only became popular but became incredibly powerful. And that was one of the things that really troubled this Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you have, have read uh, some of his books. Uh, two of the latest biographies on Bonhoeffer, one by Eric Metaxas and the one that came out last year by James Marsh entitled um, A Strange Land. Both of these make uh, a point in the formation of D Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theology and his ministry in Germany, formation of the Confessing Church in Germany at this time, was that, was that he saw the inability of the church to face what it was it was facing politically with Nazism and culturalism with fascism. What, what Bonhoeffer saw was that, and he was a part of it. I mean, he saw himself from the inside as being part of the problem that needed to be fixed. And one of the things that he saw was that the church had become very political, that it had bought into the politics of, of, of the empire. It had, had bought in politically and, and, and was compromising itself and its message because of its connection to politics. But even more important to Bonhoeffer, he had seen the church become highly 
intellectualized it had become a very academic it was all about the head and what was happening between the two ears it was you know some of the great theology of the 20th century was coming out of Germany at this period of time. You've heard me talk about Rudolf Bultmann uh, and others like him. They were writing theology and, and changing the way that people thought, but it was very academic. It was very intellectualized, and the church found itself without any muscle in its faith to be able to handle what was happening in Germany. And what Bonhoeffer saw and what, what just drove him sometimes to the point of tears was that the church had become intellectual and understood in the main what the Word of God was saying, but in terms of its day-to-day living out the faith, it had, it had compromised itself and it had capitulated and surrendered to culture. And that's when Bonhoeffer began to, to really forge his way theologically and, and in a, a, a ministerial sense into the world. He wrote uh, one of the finest books on what it meant to live in Christian community, what it means to be a church, in a book called Life Together. Many of you have read his most famous book, which is The, the, uh, the Cost of Discipleship, which is basically his treatise on the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he's saying that there is more to the faith, there is more to being a Christian just knowing the basic facts, the tenets, the doctrine. It is a lived-out faith that if you attack the, uh, uh, your faith in a way that you try to live it in a, just an intellectual, making sure that you understand the right things and being entertained, at least intellectually, by, by, by uh, deep arguments, that what you have done is cheapened grace. That you have, you have bought into the idea of salvation without really being saved, saved in such a way that grace has its way with you and you become a transformed person. Now, it's a reminder in every age that it's not just what the church says and preaches and teaches, but how it lives in the community around it, with each other and with those that, that don't quite understand the faith or don't quite understand the presence of God. It's important in how we live with each other to express that. That's one of the things that Paul is, is, is working with with the church in Colossae. He writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, that whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Whatever you say, whatever you do, whether it's a word or deed that you're involved in, make sure that you're doing it in a way that Jesus is recognized. Now, last week, one of the ways that we considered in James that this happens, where people are able to see the faith in, 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 in very awesome ways, is in the area of, of suffering. That when a, when a believer, when a disciple of Jesus begins to go through a period of suffering, and sometimes it's one day, sometimes it's a lot of days strung together, that one of the ways that people see that God is a treasure above all treasures, that Jesus really is more precious than anything else in the world, is the way that we comport ourselves and the way that we live out the implications of faith when we're going through those tough, suffering, agonizing, anguished, woe-filled times of life. That a disciple recognizes that suffering comes to everyone in a world that is cursed with thorns and thistles. But instead of disintegrating, a disciple of Jesus has a, res uh, a resilience and a strength about him. That instead of dropping into the fetal position, that the disciple has a certain kind of poise. And a certain kind of buoyancy when it comes to those, those rough waves. A disciple understands that God uses the power of evil against itself in order to turn a person of faith into a beauty and into a gem and into a diamond and a person of courage and a person of endurance. That's what we saw last week. 
This week, James helps us to see this, that there must never be a disconnect between the faith that is professed and the faith that is portrayed by the church. That our words and actions have to match. That it's not enough just to say the right things. You have to live them. And it's not just enough to live it, you have to say it as well. And beginning this week and going for maybe a lesson or two, we're going to be talking about the connection between words and deeds, our faith and works. Now friends, the beauty of the faith is not just in what it teaches, but how that truth transforms people. And at the heart of that is God's Word. And what James helps us to see at this beginning point of thinking about words and deeds is that there's a reminder of the power of God's Word There's a relationship that the disciple has with the Word of God that is intimate and close, and there's a desire on the part of the disciple to hear the Word of God. There's instructions on on how to encounter the Word of God in such a way that it changes you and brings life to you. And then, number four, there's signs that the Word of God is really, truly working in your life. And so what we begin with is the reminder. I, I, I read a lot. And I read, I read fiction, I read nonfiction, I read theology, I read, you know, I, I read Reader's Digest. I, I read everything. And I remember the first time that uh, I read Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird. I was in high school at the time, and uh, I, I was homesick for a week and didn't have anything else to do and started pulling books off mom and dad's bookshelf and in their library and, and just started reading. And Reading this book, laying there on the couch up there and uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., reading this book, it was the first time that I had read something and understood the social implications. My favorite character in all of literature from that day forward is Atticus Finch. Now, I, I don't know what Harper Lee was thinking Atticus Finch looked like. I, to me, he always looked like Gregory Peck. But he is courageous and he's strong in the book and he's not the only one i mean the book is just full of characters that i love there's there's his son and daughter jim and and scout jean louise there's uh, there's dill harris remember dill whose um whose character was actually based on truman capote there's tom robinson that is the the guy that uh, atticus finch defends in the court trial there's one i think one of the unsung heroes in the book and one of my favorite characters in the book is uh, is Calpurnia. There's Boo Radley, and then I think we have a picture of Boo, then we have a picture of Calpurnia. She is one of my favorite characters as well. And all of these characters have something in common. They're all strong in one way or another. They're strong in their integrity, strong in their ethic. Uh, Dill, for instance, is strong. I mean, he's, he's, he's being raised by a single mother. He doesn't understand where his father is, but he's strong as he copes. You have, uh, you know, you have Jim, who is strong in the sense of being wise and courageous beyond his years. But even with this book, as interesting and as compelling and as captivating as all of these characters are and unforgettable, the story is. Here's the thing. After reading that book and putting it down, a book that I loved and a book that I read from time to time, after reading it and putting it down, I'm basically the same person. Question I have for us is when we read the Bible, do we come away the same person? When we sit down with God's Word and it's opened up, and we're reading these words that have been brought to us through God's Spirit that were first birthed in the heart of God in all of eternity, do we read the Bible and come away 
the same person. This is why James reminds us of a very important fact about the Word of God. Verse 18, He chose to give us what? Birth. Our birth comes through what? The Word of God that we might be kind of a firstfruits of all He created. What is, you know, think back the early years of, of your faith when maybe you were a little kid, uh, preschool, kindergarten, nursery, elementary. What's one of the first lessons you always learn about God? Starting in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And what is it that happened in those chapters? God said, let there be light, and there was light. One of the first things, one of the first messages, lessons, that your truths about God that as a Christian you begin to discover is that is that God speaks a word that is powerful and transforming. That when I, when I speak a word to, to, you know, like my kids when they were growing up, I could say, you know, you need to be in by 5 o'clock. And, you know, depending on what was happening the other day, they might come in at 4.55 or they may come in at 5.30. But when God speaks, there is an action that takes place. God's Word is different from mine, even though mine has sort of a modicum of authority with certain people, and especially when my children were small. But God's Word is different. There's an action, there's a power that is inherent in the Word of God. And James reminds the people that are reading this letter, who profess faith in Christ, that they're not just reading some everyday, ordinary, garden-variety, vanilla words that come from some human being. The Word that created the universe is the Word that brings the kingdom of God into your heart. It is this Word that is spoken to you that you embrace, that you believe, that you put your faith and your trust in, that brings about your new birth. And Jesus underscores the importance of paying attention to this Word by reminding us of a piece of wisdom from their culture. He says in verses 19 and 20, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now again, James is writing wisdom literature. This verse reflects the wisdom the readers understood and believed to be true about about human words. Here's an example. Proverbs 17, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, slow to speak, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered or slow to anger. The point that James is trying to get in in their, their hearts right now is that if words in our everyday use of them can make or break your life, then how much more so the words of God? And that's where James reminds us of a special relationship that a disciple of Jesus has with the Word of God. The Word of God has a special and unique relationship with you. In verse 21, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. I want you to circle that word planted. It's an agricultural word. Peter sort of uses the same language. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you, have, for you have been born again, not of perishable what? Seed. Everybody... Everybody knows what a seed is. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. There you have agricultural terminology again. It's seed and word, word and seed. Now, in the use of this kind of terminology, 
Both Peter and James are trying to get us to think visually about the Word of God because when you, most time, especially in the Western world, when we think about the Word of anybody, and, and sometimes even more so the Word of God, we think in abstract thought. The, the Eastern world is very visual. And so he uses parables. Jesus uses parables. James and, and Peter and others use, use metaphors to help us to understand in, in a very concrete way, in a visual way, uh, some truth about God or about God's Word. So he says, you know, think about this agricultural terminology. There is this Word that is planted in you. It's this imperishable seed. When something is, is planted in the ground, what's it supposed to do? Take root and grow and blossom. When something is planted in the ground, it takes root, it grows, and it blossoms. Which is what James is saying to us. Is that the Word of God is not something that we just leave on the exterior, on the, on, on the facade of our life, but it's something that goes deep, deep, deep down inside of us and takes root in our soul and grows and blossoms but it's also more than that in your bibles go back up to verse 18 and i want you to circle the words first fruits again agricultural term it's the first you know first fruits sort of self-explanatory right first fruits are the the first produce during the harvest but it's also a theological term the first fruits were always theologically Going all the way back to the Old Testament time of, of, of Moses, the first fruits were what belonged to God, and the first fruits were the things that were dedicated to God, which is another way for James to say that the Word of God has a special relationship with you, and you have a special relationship with it. Think about David. Think about David and his relationship with the Word of God. The longest chapter in the Bible is which chapter? I'll give you a hint Psalms. Psalms, what? 119, right on. I think somebody said Psalm 1. Close. Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is, is about the greatness of God's Word. The longest chapter in the entire Bible is about the greatness of God's Word. David will say in Psalm 1, now we're back to Psalm 1, he says, Blessed is the one, in verse 1, and then verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates delight in the law, and meditates on his law day and night. You know, David is, is, is not saying, you know what I love to do when I go to bed at night? I love to meditate on God's Word, everything except Leviticus. David's not saying, you know, when I get up in the morning, the first thing I think about is, man, I just I want to I love God's Word, and I want to delight in God's Word, except those places that make me a little bit uncomfortable. David is not picking or choosing the passages that he finds personally palatable and, and tasteful and then moving on. David wants to hear God's Word speak to him. He doesn't read it for information. He reads God's Word and meditates on God's Word and delights in God's Word because it's God's voice through that Word speaking to him. Have you ever been really down? I mean, I mean down in the dumps, a little discouraged... Maybe not thinking that life is going along the trajectory that you would really like for it to go. And all of a sudden, you open up, you get this letter. It's a white envelope in MacArthur Park Church of Christ. You open up, and it's one of those little pink cards in it. You ever gotten one of those? Not feeling all that great? 
And then somebody sent you one of those pink cards, which is an encouragement card, and they tell you something that you needed to hear. And what do you do with that card? Uh, well, that's really nice. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, and you throw it away. Nobody does that. Do you know how many houses I've gone into your houses and have gone into your kitchen and seen pink encouragement cards up on the what? The fridge. The fridge. It's like a Christmas tree and the ornaments are pink cards, right? I mean, that's what you do with those cards. You, you, you memorize the words. You think about it. You think about the person that, that wrote them to you and you put it someplace where you see it every day and you thrill every time you read it. Why? Because it hits you where you need it and you want more of it. That's what David and James and everyone else is saying about the Word of God. That it has a special relationship with you. That it's like the seed that's planted inside of you. That it takes root in your soul and it grows and it blossoms in places where you didn't know you had buds. But that you also have a special relationship with it. It is a word of life. A word that brings life to you. A disciple has a unique and special relationship with the word of God. And, and it's here that James gives us a few instructions. Now, again, this, this particular part of the text is really, really rich. I'll probably come back to it at some time to do something a little bit more blown out. But verses 22 through 25 are so rich, I just want to pull out two things. First, look at verses 22 through 24. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Say the next four words with me. Do what it says. Let's say it again. Do what it says. Let's say it again, but let's use our outside voices. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What James is saying is that the Word of God is to be obeyed. It's, it's about your life conforming to it rather than you conforming the Word of God to you. And then in James chapter 1, verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So here's the combination that he's talking about, the two things. You have, to, you have to do it. You have to do it. But at the same time, you're looking intently into it. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, you, you know, most people, and, and, and you run into them all the time, not, not just people of faith, but people in, in general, who read the Bible or have read parts of the Bible, and you think that the God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty and violent, and that the God of the New Testament is a God of love. How many of you have ever heard that? I mean, does that sound familiar? And you believe that up to a certain extent until you get to this passage in Jonah. You read this passage where Jonah, who wants the God of the Old Testament to be bloodthirsty, he wants the God of the Old Testament, to be violent to the Ninevites because the Ninevites are enemy, ruthless, ugly, cruel, brutal people. But Jonah has been reading Torah. He's been reading the Old Testament. He's been reading the, the books of Moses. And, and after reading Torah and reading the, the Old Testament, what, whatever that was, when, when Jonah was alive, he becomes disobedient 
to God's call for Jonah to go to Nineveh because, chapter 4, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Somehow Jonah was reading the Bible in such a way, looking intently into the Old Testament in such a way that he did not come away with the idea that God was this violent, bloodthirsty, capricious, cruel God. But the very reason he was disobedient is because he knew God was otherwise. So how do you read? Are you looking intently into God's Word? How did that fella over there in the New Testament who had read the Old Testament all of his life, come to agreement with Jesus that the sum of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy was to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor. It's by looking intently into the Word of God for understanding and for meaning. When, when you get out your concordance and, and look up you know, where you know, these words appear elsewhere, this look intently or elsewhere, it really kind of describes Peter as he goes into the empty tomb on Easter morning after Jesus is resurrected. He's looking intently into that tomb. He didn't glance and, and keep on going. He stood there for a while and he took it all in until the meaning of those cloths sunk in. He thought about what he saw for the rest of his life. That, that's why reading the Word of God, not just doing it, but reading the Word by looking intently into it, and meditating and delighting into it and going into it day by day by day, hour by hour. Think about the way that Jesus and the Word interact. I mean, Jesus went through no cruel, anguish, suffering, joyous part of His life without the Word of God being on His lips. The very beginning of His ministry, Matthew chapter 4, what is He quoting when the devil comes to Him and tempts Him three times to bypass the cross and go another way to exaltation and glory? He quotes from Deuteronomy of all places, Three times to fight sin and the temptation. And at the end of his life, as he's up there on the cross and he's, he's dying, and it's love that's keeping him on the crossing, compelling him to stay on the cross, not the nails and not the soldiers, but it's love. What is on his lips? Scripture. Scripture that he had looked intently into. Well, very quickly, three signs, and we're not going to spend any time here really at all, but three signs that help us to understand that we're on the right path when it comes to doing and reading, looking intently into God's Word. Three signs. The first one is you really begin to watch the use of your own words. And the reason for that is when you begin to read God's Word in such a way that you realize more and more and more the wisdom and the power and the strength and the transformation that takes place because God's Word is speaking to your heart and to your soul and to your mind and to your heart and all of that. All of a sudden you begin to realize that the Word of God, that words themselves are very, very important and should never be treated 
in a flippant, lackadaisical way. And you begin to watch your own words because you begin to understand the power of those words. And if, the God, if God's word has that kind of influence on your life, is it at least possible that your words might have influence on somebody else's life? And so as, as James, and he's going to talk about this a little bit later, and I'll talk about it more then. He says, you know, you begin to rein in your words a little bit because you know their power. And the second thing he says is you begin to advocate for the down and out. As you, you read God's word, you begin to see that like Martin Luther did in, in, in the 1500s, in the 16th century, you begin to see who you are in light of God's holiness. And you see the, the, the profound depth of God's grace to you and His gift that regardless of how you might try to be obedient to God's Word, if, you don't, if God does not want you to be saved and does not save you, you're not saved. You can't earn it. And you begin to see God as gracious and loving and benevolent and fatherly and parental, and familial, and shepherdly. I don't even know if that's a word. But you were here when it was invented. You begin to see all of these things. And you, you see how you are the recipient of such great blessing and of, and of such great gifts from God. Even in the midst of suffering, the recipient of such great things. And then you begin to look around and you begin to see people that you can imitate God by being their advocate and by blessing them and by being gracious to them and taking care of them and, 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 and standing up for them and, and recognizing them and, and treating them as human beings. In this particular case, James says, it's the widows and the orphans. It's, it's those that have nobody else. Nobody else that can stand for them. They have no hope because there's nobody else. It's just them unless somebody comes into their life and you see that that's what happened to you, that you are on your own and that you are going to fail unless someone comes into your life and that's someone God. And you begin to imitate that. And then the last thing is you begin to live this beautiful life. He talks about being polluted and we'll, t we'll talk more about that as we, we go through this series. But you, you begin to see all of these, these different ways that your life doesn't begin to line up with, with the life of Christ and and with, with the presence of God in your life, and with Scripture and His will, and all of these kinds of things. And all of a sudden you begin, as you read and look intently into the world, and the word that, that gave you new birth becomes the word that's planted in you as you become first fruits, and you have this special relationship with God's word, and it with you, and as it takes root, and you begin to grow and to blossom all of this fruit, you begin to desire the very things that God desires. You know, there was a real cultural shift in America uh, about 20 years ago. You know, I grew up in a family that if your dad liked the Dallas Cowboys, you liked whom? The Dallas Cowboys. And, and actually that cultural shift happened a, a little bit earlier than that because, you know, if your dad liked Lawrence Welk and it was 1960s, you liked who? The Beatles. <laughs> you know, but, but, there's, but there's something in the sense that, you know, we grow up and we see our father and the things that our father likes and our father loves, our mother likes and our mother loves, those are the things that we get used to and the things that we enjoy and the things that we appreciate and we begin to desire the very kinds of things. If your mom and dad have a great marriage, then that's what you want. If your mom and dad did not have a great marriage, you don't want that. You want the good stuff. You want the stuff that blesses. And the closer you draw to God, and the more His life, His presence, His Word, His, his Spirit, His... His, his, his Son 
impacts your life, the more you're changed. And you rein in your words and you begin to, to, to look out for the, the, the down and out and advocate for them and you begin to, to, to live a life that regardless of where you go in this world, when people see you, they see the Christ. That when people see you, your life may be the only God's Word that they ever get to see. And that's what it means to amplify your faith. To live a life that can't be ignored. To live a life that is intensified by God's Spirit, that's magnified. That's magnifying God all the time, but, but, but your life is magnified as, as God's Word and God's Spirit causes you to blossom. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. You know, it's, it's, it's an invitation, but I want you to think about this. You know, when, when God speaks a word into nothing, there's creation. God speaks to nothing, and there's something. And what happens when God speaks a word to creation? The Christ comes, who is, according to John, the Word of God. And your relationship with God, again, depends on that Word. And Jesus is that one who lived out all of the implications of law, all the implications of, of, of Leviticus and the Old Testament, and lived out all of that stuff perfectly, not a single blemish, so that we are able to get the righteousness that He deserves while He got the punishment that we deserve. And by taking on all of that, He gets... He gets the condemnation where we get the blessing and we get the life. And we want to offer you uh, an opportunity, if that's never happened for you, we want to offer an opportunity for, you, for that to happen for you this morning. For you to confess that you believe in the Word of God and what it teaches about the Word of God who is Jesus. And that Word is your King. And that Word is your Savior. And that Word is the one that provides a way for you to participate in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection by having your sins washed away in baptism. And God puts His Spirit inside of you so that you can live out the implications of the Word every day of your life as you grow into it, as it takes root and grows and blossoms in your life. And if that describes you this morning, as Ben's leading us in the song, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds about any way that we might minister to you spiritually as we stand and praise God together. My Jesus, I love thee.